When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show on Friday the 7th of September. We're with you till 11 o'clock. 086-1800-658 is our text number. It's also our WhatsApp number 086-1800-658. And we are available across social media, Instagram, Facebook and on Twitter at LMFM Radio. If you have a comment, we'd love to hear from you. And Marie Cairns will be in studio with me a little later on to bring us your comments and your texts. Now, Salt Hill at this time of year can be an absolutely lovely place for a little autumnal stroll down the promenade. perhaps a few days rest and recuperation but for Fine Gael Salt Hill this week is the scene of their thinking uh, with many people feeling that the country is heading towards an election be it this year next year or indeed in 2020 as Taoiseach Leo Varadkar would like to have it Joining us on the line to discuss the domination of yesterday's think tank of the homeless crisis is Minister Damien English Minister of State at the Department of Housing Planning and Local Government Good morning to you Minister Morning Carl how are you? I can, Salt Hill is looking good I can confirm that much No stroll though no stroll. <laughs> I went for a run earlier on, all right, yeah, when the sun was rising. Okay. Looked well this morning. Tell us how much, uh, Minister, homelessness and, and the housing crisis dominated yesterday's think tank, please. Uh, certainly, it was a good part of the discussion, all right. Uh, the teacher addressed us at length in his own speech. Uh, then we, we had a long, lengthy discussion then with uh, Owen Murphy leading off and all of, all of us contributing as well in debating and discussing the different, the different aspects of the different parts of it. A lot of the issues we would have covered on the show during the week as well around the delivery of houses and both private, affordable and public and social housing and how that, that's beginning to come right now and the new houses are coming on stream. But a major focus is probably still around the number of people who, who don't have a house who are in emergency accommodation. So, yeah, it was a big part of the discussion. A lot of the discussion was also, though, about the upcoming budget and kind of setting out where we're going over the next couple of years. Uh, a, a large part of the Taoiseach speech was devoted to uh, his letter to Michael Martin as well, uh, looking uh, for stability, asking that we can keep this government uh, in operation for, for the next two years and to set a date in summer 2020 for an election as opposed to just drift on week to week or month to month uh, after, after which, which Fianna Fáil have rejected Yeah, which, to, which I think is a bit strange and look, they have, they haven't, they've, they've, they've rejected having the discussion on, until after the budget uh, the budget is in, at this stage only about four or five weeks away and then Fianna Fáil want to sit down to, 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 to negotiate potential um, uh, extension to the conference and supply agreement. Leo Varadkar, the teacher, would make the point that, you know, technically the agreement is over after the budget. And if you know that in a month's time you might not have stability, you might not have a, go- a budget, or sorry, a government, and we're heading into the Brexit negotiations, it's not a great place to be. It's not really the right thing for the country. This country needs security, stability, and, and the confidence to make plans for next year and the year after. Did you, did you get, any, did you get any feeling yesterday that there is a fear within Fine Gael that we won't have a government within a month? No, there's not, there's not a fear, but it's just common sense and, and the reality that we want to do our job. I'm here as a junior minister, Owen Murphy is as a senior minister in our department, trying to make plans for more houses for next year, more homes. And, and it's, it would be nicer to do that and easier to do that if you knew 
that the government would still be there. And it's a Fianna Gael independent government supported by Fianna Fáil. And credit to them for doing that. I mean, it was a, it, that, that's important to recognise that as well. But I'm not sure an election would, would change much for anybody, but we could lose an awful lot of time trying to, trying to implement good results for this country. And the country is, is in a better place than it was six, seven years ago. Things are improving for most people. There's still a lot of work to happen yet. Incomes are beginning to go up, but people are still under pressure with their budgets at home, their own house, paying down their bills, paying down their debts. Most people now are, are back at work or on the way back to work. A lot of improvements in health and education, housing. But there's still a lot to go. And, you know, Brexit puts a lot of things at risk if we don't manage well, it right and uh, if we don't get our budgets right as well. And we just want to try to put the country on a, on a firmer foot. Well, let's, let's go back to the housing crisis because uh, even, even Taoiseach Leo Varadkar yesterday said that people are sceptical that this government, and, and in particular yourself and uh, Minister Owen Murphy, can deliver uh, on the promise. Now, he, his promises announced next week about a land development agency. He said there's no quick fix, but the land development agency is going to be as big in the history of the state as the ESB or Aer Lingus were in the past. Can you tell us what this exactly is going to be, Minister? Yeah, the Land Management Agency, or Development Agency, is something we would have flagged in Ireland 2040, which was the, the long, the, 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 the plan for the country that we announced last February, looking 25 years ahead. We recognise, and, and part of the work we're doing in, in my department now, which is housing and planning, is apart from trying to address and fix the housing situation for today and next year and the years ahead, we're trying to look 15, 20, 25 years ahead to make sure that we can't repeat what we've had. I mean, at one stage there, less than 10 years ago, we were building 90,000 houses a year, and then we were building none. And that's a boom and bust situation we can't go back to, because that means you end up with 3,000 ghost estates all over the place that nobody wanted, and we had to come in and fix them. You end up with hundreds of thousands of jobs going uh, and no building. And then three or four years later, here we are now with not enough houses. So we can't have that again. So we this, want this have, is a long term. I want to finish my, we Sorry. want to have a sustainable housing construction sector. And to do that, you have to plan to build about 30,000 houses every year from here on in. And that means managing the land. Now, the Land Development Agency, uh, on behalf of the state, will manage the land the state owns and all the public land belonging to all the different departments. Um, well, well, you know, that's, that's just, just to clarify, to are you talking about 30,000 social housing units per year? No, we want to, the, the so country needs the about 30,000 houses in general. We're committing and we are committed in our long-term plans with money behind that for about to, to get to 12,000 social houses a year. This initial um, housing plan we had brings us to 2021 where we'll get to 10,000 houses and thereafter we want to deliver 12,000 social houses a year. But on top of that then, you, you need uh, another... Um, uh, 18,000 to 20,000 private houses just to, to, to supply the people's needs uh, for, of all, of all um, uh, backgrounds in terms of social welfare or, or, or jobs or affordable or rent or the, the different demands on the housing sector. But we know as a country but is, we is, have is that, is that, is that a long-term fix? It is a long-term fix, but, 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 but just to be clear now, that this is not to do with today's homeless situation. This is to prevent a homeless situation in the future. We know that there's going to be an extra million people living in Ireland by 2040. That means we have to have uh, houses for that, and that means um, having up to another, uh, you know, that's, you're going to need your 30,000 houses a year to be able to supply and to service that number of people. Now, in the short term, we have to go from literally building no houses two or three years ago to getting to that uh, 30,000. Next year, we expect that we will be at about 25,000 houses being built in this country. Um, about one in, one in four of them will be social housing, because that's what we need. We're, we are short of social houses, council houses. There wasn't enough built here for the last 10 years because there was no money. Uh, before that, other governments had decided to stop building them. 
So we're, we're putting that on a firm footing now to make sure that we build enough houses every year for the future, but also to give security to the people who are employed in that sector and they know it's okay to have let's, a let's, let's get back to the current situation because, you know, by Leo Varadkar's own admission, as I said to you earlier, people are sceptical. A lot of pressure on Owen Murphy yesterday. I mean, he, he has spoken about emergency powers, about writing to local authorities and warning them that if they don't take the emergency housing situation in hand, he will take that power away from them. What, yeah, councils, to, what councils is he writing to and are any of them local? Okay, just to, just to be clear on this, this is a separate part to the housing, house building and to the delivery of houses, okay? We've been working very hard with local Correct. authorities over the last two years, and there's some great success there in terms of putting councils back in the business of building houses. And this year, they'll build over 4,000 houses and deliver that. So there's great improvements on the delivery of housing, which give us the, the houses we need to, to address a housing shortage. But in, in, while they're doing that, you also need to provide accommodation for people who don't have a house and who we can't rent a house for of the no available house. And at the moment, the major pressure is in the Dublin local authority areas. You know, where the, like there's the majority of the families who don't have a house today who are living in a family hub or a hotel are in the Dublin area. You know, if you take, if you take Loud Mead, if you take Loud and Mead, there wouldn't be that, that number. Like in, across the Mid-East area, which is Mead, Wick, Uncle Dare, there's less than 50 families who wouldn't have a house at any given stage. Where in Dublin, you're well over 1,000 families. So we've written to the Dublin local authorities. So we meet them on a regular basis and we've had a couple of housing summits and we've talked through solutions. And the best solution for people who don't have a house while they're building them the new permanent house is, we believe, family hubs. Uh, and also then to be able to rent them a house through the HAP scheme. Some local authorities um, don't really want or don't seem to be in a position to deliver the family hubs. What Ron Murphy and myself are saying to them very clearly is we expect you to deliver some family hubs to provide accommodation in the short term for people while we're waiting for their new houses. And that hasn't happened in some cases. So we've written to them all and reminded them again, like, as of last year, there was a duty on them to deliver some family hubs. So, we're, we're, you know, and, and no one is very clear on this. If, if they can't do that or if they refuse to do it or whatever reason, then we have to step in and do it ourselves. But that is separate to how local authorities have really stepped up here and are now but building is, is Fingal County Council one of those councils? It's all the Dublin area. Again, some are doing very well, and we, we will sit down again now next Wednesday, the 12th. But some of them, acor- according to Alan Murphy uh, yesterday, some of them are failing badly. Some are on the family hubs, uh, and, and this is what we're saying. You know, so if you take the, 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 a lot of the, the families in, in emergency accommodation now are living probably in, in, uh, on the Dublin, County, Dublin City Council's area and are in hotels and are in family hubs. And each of the four Dublin local authorities have to take responsibility for the homeless families in their area. And they have to provide some emergency solutions. And some have, and some have had some good success. Others haven't. And there's a duty on all of us here to play our part. And I want to be very clear. The local authorities now were not in a position two years ago to build houses. They, were, they did not have the staff, didn't have the resources, the teams, and they had been stopped by previous governments in doing that. We now have local authorities in a much stronger position, working very well with our department, working very well with all the outside stakeholders in bringing forward new housing solutions and permanent housing solutions. This letter yesterday is in relation to uh, emergency situation in, in the months ahead to provide additional emergency accommodation in the form of family hubs, because we would all agree uh, a family 
are, should not be raised in a hotel. It's not a place to be for a couple of months. It's not a place to, to raise you, a family. A family home is a better place, a very short-term intervention while you're waiting for a home. Did you, Minister, yesterday get any inkling from the ground uh, in the meeting that your own members are starting to get fed up with all Murphy? To be honest with you, that's, that's, that's actually not true. Uh, and, you know, you, you read some of these things in papers and so on. It's not true. I mean, I engage with our, with our own members of the party and with over 70 here yesterday uh, of the parliamentary party. And I, I meet them and talk to them every day of the week and so does Owen Murphy. We're working with them on solutions. Um, there is no issue. They understand that this is a five-year plan. They backed us fully two years ago when we asked for six billion of taxpayers' money to try and solve the housing situation. They all came on board. What yesterday was about was updating them all with, for each individual county exactly the number of houses they're building where the 8,000 social houses are, are coming from this year, where, what, what part of each county they're in, what each local authority is doing in terms of emergency solutions and what the plans are uh, for the years ahead as well. But also showing them where the private houses have been built to because there's actually a lot happening out there. And it's only when you put it all but, on one but page... But the, the Minister speak. has the backing, as far as you're concerned, the Minister and yourself have the backing of the Fine Gael Party. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And the teacher was very clear yesterday. While we all recognise that up to 10,000 people without a house and then living in an emergency accommodation is very, very serious and not satisfactory for anybody. And it's not anything we want. Fine Gael are committed. And we, our plans are more ambitious than any other party. We're the ones now making it happen. We're the ones in charge of taxpayers' money and we're spending taxpayers' money to solve the housing but he situation. But he is, and Minister, he is, to quote one of the headlines this morning, uh, Owen Murphy is in the firing squad and, and by definition you are as well by association. That's other political parties playing politics. I'm, I take my job seriously and as a party we take our job seriously. Richard I, Bruton spoke, sorry, I'm making a point yesterday, Richard Bruton spoke yesterday and reinforced the point that seven or eight years ago there was 15% unemployment. There was hundreds of thousands of people with no job. He set out a five-year plan. I was a junior minister in that department with him. I worked with him on that and we tracked that five-year plan. And Richard Bruton reminded us all, and I, I said this before myself, that in year two of his job plan, uh, people outside of the party were wondering was it ever going to deliver where were the jobs speaking, speaking in year 3, 4 and 5 those jobs came in and 200,000 okay, jobs just, just to bring this back to, to, to two local issues number one in Loud we had a report on the show this week where there's no money left uh, to repair houses in Dundalk yeah, I've, I've, again, I've, I've heard the reports. I didn't get to get the full detail on that. I'm sure, because again, we've, we've, we've written this week to our local authorities and, and, and I've told them if they've any housing stock uh, that's empty and needs refurbishment, that we will pay for that. The money will be will released from the department. So money is there if there's any vacant for, stock. And again, but like, for repairs? For repairs, again, each local authority are given a budget on that. Sometimes they use their own resources. And if they need more, they need to come back and ask us. I would be, you know, I'd be surprised if they're in a situation that their money, the money is spent. And it's, it actually, is, it's actually, but, it's actually all over now. It's not but, just on dock. Yeah, but but again, Carl, if that's the case, that there's no, that they need to come back and ask us for more money. I have to compliment Loud when it comes to repairing of derelict properties and bringing back in empty properties. They're probably the leading county that are brought back in vacant properties, and I've done great work, and I've been in Loud opening new houses and looking at the work they've done as well uh, over the last year or two. So you, you may be able to help them with funds well, for Well, certainly, Loud, Loud have proven themselves to be able to deliver when it comes to housing stock, so we have to work with them on that, and if there's an issue there, we'll certainly look at that. But we, again, if there's any empty houses out there belonging to the state, we have made it very clear the funding is there to bring all them back into use. I did give you a figure the other day, which is correct, that over 8,400 empty properties have been brought back in. Loud have done that along with a lot of private houses. They've gone out there 
and more or less CPO that took over and brought them back into use, which is a very positive result for this county, for your county and for the country. I have two very quick questions to finish. One, um, Councillor Caroline Lynch, Sinn Féin Councillor in Mead, says that you're out of touch with rent, that the uh, Trim Council themselves, Trim MDC, voted to, uh, to make Trim a rent pressure zone. You said that's not needed on this programme. No, I, I didn't say any of it was not needed. I said, unlike Sinn Féin, I have no ambition that our towns fit into rent pressure zones. There is a formula there that's managed by the RTB. Their job is to assess this. And they, the, the Residential Tenancy Board, they make the judgment on actual rents, not on rents that are asked, not on rents you hear about in the, in the media, but they are the ones that have the information of rents that are charged. Sinn Féin seem to want to love the idea of putting all the media into a rent, rent pressure zone. So they want high rents. Well, she she, want say, she says your own Fine Gael councillors voted for this. As I've very clearly said to you, uh, again, Sinn Féin, it's, they seem to want and love the idea of having rent pressure zones. If, if they're required in our towns and our towns fit into the criteria that's set out, because uh, as a minister, it's not my job to interfere and just because it's my town, put it in someplace. There has to be a proper, logical way to make decisions of government and we put a process in place for that to happen. It has meant that some towns in Mead have, have, have ended up in the rent pressure zones. Other towns, like like, like um, Trim and Navin and Enfield, are not there yet. They could be there at the next assessment, which is very soon. And, that, and, and if so, that will bring uh, increased um, measures there to deal with high rents. Um, but if, if it's not needed, um, it won't be. But what I, what I did say to you is the solution to the, any rents or rising rents in any of our towns is new houses. And if you again take Navin, there's over additional thousand houses coming through the system. In Mead alone, over well, the last year and a half, there's over 2,500 houses granted and commencement started. So okay. there's a lot of activity now on new houses, and that's how you bring the cost of rents down. OK, my very final question to you, Minister, because I'm sure you have a busy day ahead of you in Salt Hill. Uh, in terms of Kildalki and the bus situation, we, we were led to believe there was some discussions yesterday on school buses and various ministers, etc., were asking for something, some developments on this. We've been speaking to Una Swords and all the, the protesters in Kildalki, the, the problems they've had getting their children to school in Trim. Is there any update on this? There's no update as of yet. I've been speaking to him myself as well and, and uh, trying to work on this too. There, there, John Halligan, we, we, we'll be meeting him next week again to go through potential housing solutions we raised with Richard, sorry, potential solutions to, to buses we raised with Richard Rutten as well. There are very often these situations around bus routes get very messy, very complicated in the month of September. In a lot of cases, they do get sorted out as the month progresses and into October. In some cases, they don't. There are rules there, but we'll try to make sure that within the rules that are there, we can try and find a solution uh, for the families of Kildalki. And there's other areas as well in County Mead and other counties as well under pressure. We did have a long discussion on here yesterday as well and the importance of having a school bus network. A decision was made about 10 years ago that the school bus will be, will be provided to your nearest school. Uh, that doesn't always solve, the, that doesn't always suit some people because they might go to a different school or it's a, a tradition from a certain area to go to a school or a family might already have been going to that school and that's what's kind of complicated here as well. So there is a kind of a complicated system there but very often within that system we find solutions during the month of September and I'll certainly work with the parents there to help them try and find a solution. I know there's 12 uh, pupils there who don't have a bus at the moment. Two of them had a, had the bus before. There's 10 new people. It is an awkward situation. And we'll sit down with the Minister John Halligan and we'll try to find a solution to this through bus airing as well. And hopefully we can find one um, within within the system that's there at the moment. Minister Damien English, Minister of State at the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government, thank you for your time. We'll be back after this. 
And you are most welcome back to the Michael Reid Show with me, Cahill Dervin, sitting in for Michael this week. Michael will be back with you on Monday from 9.15. We're going to go back to Salt Hill now. You heard there from Minister Damien English about the housing crisis, etc., and the impact that had on the Fine Gael thinking in Salt Hill yesterday. If you have a comment, by the way, 086-1800-658. We'd love to hear from you. And Marie will be in in a little while with your comments and texts. But joining me now from Galway is Eileen Brophy, our political editor. Good morning to you, Eileen. Good morning, Cahill. Lovely part of the world this time of the year? Did you get oh, a stroll fantastic. in the prom at all? We, when we arrived it was dreadful but by, by yesterday evening I was just beautiful to have a walk around the prom and it's, and it's grand now today again. A bit dull but it looks as if it's going to brighten up. It's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah. So the storm has settled Eileen has it? Oh, there's no storm settled inside the hotel here <laughs> yesterday. There was certainly a storm, I think. Um, I'm a long time around, as you know, and it's the first time in a long time, I won't say the first time, but the first time in a long time I have seen a minister under pressure uh, from the media. He uh, was about 15 minutes um, of an interview all about housing. This is Owen Murphy. Um, this is Owen Murphy, of course, uh, on the homeless and the housing and what he's doing and what he's not doing. There's two things you'd wonder, did the minister find his teeth uh, or um, is he trying to blame somebody else by blaming uh, the local authorities by saying, you know, that he's written to them and he's threatening them. I'll take the powers into my own hands and I'll do it. Why didn't he do that before? We've had a whole summer where we hardly heard anything about housing until that family uh, were in the in the news about uh, sleeping in the guard stations. Up to that, we hardly heard anything about housing. We did see photographs of him in the swimming trunks going off for a little dip over the summer. <laughs> Yes, we did. That was down in Kerry. And, and I wouldn't mind, but even where they went in in Kerry uh, was uh, a, a, an area where you're asked not to go in and, and, and they, were, they were pulled out again uh, at that stage. But oh. I believe they're going for a dip this morning again. And, and I think they'll be going for a dip very soon. In terms of uh, Owen Murphy, I mean, he passed that ball yesterday better than the Irish team did in Cardiff last night. Yeah, he absolutely did. Um, and he was under severe pressure. He kept going back to it and back to it. And we kept saying, who? Who did you write to? Why did you write to them? Which ones? And he, he wouldn't obviously tell us. But we, we certainly have the impression that it would be three uh, around the Dublin area. Uh, we believe that, that, that the Dublin City Council is performing fairly, fairly well. But it's, it's the others uh, in, in the area uh, that he has written to and he's not happy with them. And that was certainly the talk around yesterday evening after the press conference. Well, we're, we're, we're led to believe from Minister Damien English this morning that Loud and me, they're doing OK on this one so far. So. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're talking about the, like, there's four around Dublin, so we're talking about three of them. And if the City Council uh, are, are performing fairly well, then I think we know what the, where the others are. So, um, you know, you can, you can work that out for now, various, yourself. Various headlines this morning, Eileen, uh, about Minister Owen Murphy and how he, he dealt with the press yesterday. And one, Murphy faces the firing squad by Daniel McConnell, the political editor of the Irish Examiner. And he said one reporter went even further than the rest and asked him, do you ever feel sometimes that you are simply not the right man for the job? That wasn't you, was it? 
No, it wasn't me. No, yeah, no, a reporter did say that to him. And, um, you know, I mean, he, he, he got very defensive on that. And again, uh, you know, he, he has this big thing about, um, you know, his accent, the posh boy. And I know people do call him the posh boy and, and, and the accent and that. Uh, and that's quite unfair, really. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, he does behave like the, the posh boy. And if he was performing in housing, then uh, that he he wouldn't have that name. People are just looking to put a name on him. Uh, but he sort of went back to that, um, and he does think he's the man for the job, uh, even though it, you know he has done very little. I mean, the Taoiseach then was saying yesterday, really, uh, you know, that the biggest problem is the emergency accommodation. That they seem to be making inroads into other areas, like the building areas, uh, the rental areas. That they seem, seem things are sort of seem to be evening out a little bit there. That they are making in progress there but they're just they're, they're going in the wrong direction uh, he said like that he wouldn't defend it uh, that really around around the emergency accommodation is where the problem is in other words like they're putting the, some of the councils what they're doing is they're putting people uh, and families into hotels they should be organising the hubs you go straight from the hub uh, into, into, into the home and that's the way that they should be doing it people shouldn't be in, in hotels for you know, for longer than a night or two, because uh, that that's what it is, emergency. You just go in for a night or two. There should be hubs there for those people. These and figures, these figures, Eileen, keep getting bigger. Absolutely, and, and the figures with the children are getting bigger. I mean, there's no way uh, for children to be brought up. Like, the, the, What kind of childhood is that for a child, you know? And, and we heard on the programme this week, you know, that down the road, children in, in these situations, and, and there are almost 4,000 children in emergency uh, or in, in emergency housing at the moment. It may not be emergency uh, as, as in hotels, but there are going to be repercussions for those kids when they grow older. There's going to be stigmas about them. There's going to be mental issues, I've no doubt, for them. It's not right. No, it's absolutely not right. And and I think, you know, the government know it's not right. Uh, but uh, I think they're out of their depth in this at the moment. And they are trying the long the long plan. Uh, they are trying the long plan. And, and they seem to be, you know, making inroads there. But it is the short term that they just can't seem to handle. And maybe, maybe um, the Minister Owen has actually found his teeth. Maybe he will uh, do something uh, about the emergency accommodation. And maybe the councils will, because we asked him, would he name and shame? Um, if they don't do do this. Now, he kind of have tried to ignore that, but we certainly got the impression, uh, well, if I'm going to be blamed, I can tell you I'll be naming and shaming. And he did say he would be writing to every council between now and the end of the year. Do you think this vote of no confidence from Sinn Féin is going to damage him? Uh, it will damage him. I think he was a worried man yesterday. Um, he, I, he was definitely under severe pressure. And it, it will damage him. Fianna Fáil will, you know, I suppose a, a, lot of, a lot of backbenchers, they're still not, uh, Mike Micheál Martin's still not out of the woods in that because a lot of the backbenchers are annoyed that he said that he wouldn't support the Sinn Féin uh, motion. So um, we have to wait and see how that fares out. He's, you know, he's saying that they will abstain. Uh, if they abstain, then obviously it will pass through but of course it is going to damage him because a lot of the stuff that's going to be said uh, in the doll a lot of the debate will absolutely damage him because even those that will that will not vote with Sinn Féin will damage him as well in what they have to say um, about the housing and by association will that damage his junior minister Damien English 
Well, probably. I think a lot of people don't really associate him with Damien English. Um, so I don't think Damien English will, will be uh, as damaged as the minister. The book stops at the minister. Now, Leo Varadkar is Taoiseach. Uh, he's done a number of interviews based around the think tank yesterday. He's still looking for this general election in 2020. I wish him luck with that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I suppose uh, it's something that Fianna Fáil would probably want as well to go um, as long as they can. But <clears throat> very few governments will actually want to go uh, to the day uh, that they have to go to the people because we don't know what's going to happen in the last six months. So they tend to go before uh, their term is actually up, where they go in their time. They go when things are good for them, when they think, you know, that that, that is the right time because you never know you just don't know in politics what's going to happen uh, obviously no one knows what's going to happen with Brexit, uh, you don't know what's going to happen with all the housing you, people don't know what will happen so I think, I think he's probably been a little bit disingenuous by saying summer of 2020 um, and you know to say that he can't plan uh, uh, without an agreement with Fianna Fáil is, is ridiculous because of course you can plan, you have to plan, you never know the government could fall next week you must plan ahead and you have to plan without thinking that the government is going to fall. And even with an agreement, the government could fall over anything. So I think it's been a bit ingenuous there about that, disingenuous there about that. And I think uh, that, you know, Micheál Martin will make an agreement. I know, uh, you know, that John McGuinness called on him yesterday and indeed the day before uh, not to. He wants an election immediately. But if you look at the polls, who in God's name would want an election when when you look at the polls at the moment? Now, just for a little bit of uh, light-heartedness, if you wouldn't mind, Eileen. Last night, I'm reading here, role-playing theatre games, creative writing with crayons and a workshop on how drama can be used in politics were on the agenda for the people who run the country, writes Philip Ryan. Role-playing, crayon drawing... A little bit like children, isn't this really like a kind of play school type of thing? Yeah, this is a bonding exercise. Now, I have to say a lot of the ministers and a lot of um, uh, TDs that I know uh, were bonding the Irish way and they were bonding in the bar while the others were at this workshop. The <laughs> which, workshop. Which one were you at, Eileen? <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> if I knew they were in the bar, I suppose you could guess where. You didn't. You didn't go. At. You didn't go to the crayon writing, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. It was mostly from from looking at those that were going to the crayon writing um, and the creative writing. They were mostly newcomers. Uh, they weren't really. There was some of the parliamentary party uh, at that, but they were mostly uh, people that are go are first timers. So the, in other the, words, the innocence. The innocence, exactly. And it's a bit like you know the first years in school. <laughs> That's basically what it was. And a couple of the, the head girls or the head boys uh, along with them, you know, to try and give them support. And, and, and that's really what it was. Um, I suppose like there was a lot of publicity about it earlier on that, you know, it was kind of an acting exercise uh, to teach them how to act. Uh, but in fact, uh, drama can, uh, to, to, to say, you know, that drama can be useful to affect social change. I really don't quite understand that. Um, I'm not into this. That sort of thing, anyway, it would, would never have something, something I always feel is kind of the American style. It's not the type of thing that I'd be interested in. Well, Eileen, do you know what I'm going to do now? Uh, I'm going to buy you a box of crayons for Christmas. Thanks very How about much. that? That'll be my Christmas gift to you. Eileen Brophy, thank you, as always, for your time. Thanks, Enjoy the rest of your uh, week or so, or whatever's left of it, in Salt Hill. And uh, if you see the crayons, run for the bar. We'll be back after the break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Carl Dervin. Marie Cairns joins me in studio now. And Marie, housing is definitely generating some interest from our listeners. It is. We've already had such a reaction this morning, uh, Carl. Chris from Drogheda phoned in and Chris says, uh, why are you giving Damien English such a handy time, Carl? Nobody is pulling him up on anything. There's plenty of plans, all right, but no houses. Three ministers, loads of plans and no houses. Says Chris. <laughs> Tom, Chris. Tom was in touch and Tom says if the council would sell off the derelict housing uh, individually to young people that maybe that's the way to go and then the money made from that could build maybe terraced houses that would be economical and that's his suggestion which isn't a bad suggestion either. Uh, Seamus from Kell says 70% of people on the housing list can't afford to buy houses. They need homes, they need stability, they need certainty. Build public houses on public land. And there's plenty of public land out there. Uh, another listener listening uh, it was Charlie and Avon actually who phoned in Charlie says I'm listening to your interview with the junior minister there uh, not to put a bad view on things but one has to be honest about it he spoke about things not being as bad as they were five to six years ago excuse me minister what planet are you living on are you living in the same area as me which is in County Mead hospital waiting lists people are waiting on operations all of that thing has increased people are homeless loads of people can't afford to buy houses he is trying to put a spin on things which is a pity says Charlie uh, it's everything like this land development agency for example it's all medium to long term isn't it um, another listener says Eileen local authorities didn't build houses for years and that's why there is such a crisis now. I mean there was no house building no. for years during the crash Not apart from social housing there was no Never private. private. No private yeah, housing. And, uh, and I agree with Eileen there was no social housing. She says can the junior minister not tell us Cahill, how many social houses does the government plan to build in the next year and where will they be built? Can anybody tell us that? I think he said that to us the other day, did he not? But you heard him today that the plan is there'll be 30,000 houses a year built from here on, roughly, and that 12,000 of them need to be. Now, it doesn't mean Mm. they're going to be built. Yes. 12,000 of them need to be social housing. Francis from Navin. Ah, Damien English. He's a saint. Saint Damien. You'd nearly believe him, says Francis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what waffle from Damien English as usual says another listener Fine Gael want power nothing else three budgets were agreed and they should be seen through Leo trying to to unsettle things uh, by using tactics to make them to look good you would think that Damien English and Owen Murphy were building the houses themselves Fine Gael spin alive and strong that was from a texter no name Another listener says that Pat from Brigand says he just wants to make the point that um, because we have taken in so many uh, people from abroad that houses are being given to people who aren't necessarily Irish and he thinks that we can't cope with providing housing for the people that currently live in this country. So why should we take in any more non-nationals until we have our housing crisis sorted out and he says and before you attempt to describe me as a racist I'm not <laughs> I, so, everybody's entitled to their opinion Marie another listener just texted in to say still plenty of derelict houses in County Meath 
Your commentator is right, and that's referring to Eileen Brophy, our political editor. Why didn't uh, the housing minister have a word with the local authorities before now? This has been going on for a long time, yet he is only saying now that the local authorities aren't doing what they should be. It seems to me that he's attempting to pass the blame. Pass the ball, as I said, uh, a little bit better than Ireland did last night. And uh, after the break, we'll be talking to Gary Breen, former Ireland captain, about that match in Wales. We will. We will. How are we doing time-wise? Are we time we're, we're, we're ready for the news, would you believe? Okay. It's already that time this morning. Well, I've paid another page full of comments, so if I can get back Come in back later. to me before we yeah. go. Thank you very much, Marie Cairns, there with and your keep comments them and text. 086 1800 658. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin. 086 1800 658, our text number as always. We're going to look now at antisocial behaviour on trains, and this will be a subject that will be of interest to so many commuters from the North East working and socialising in Dublin and using the rail networks in particular. Joining us to discuss this is Deputy John Lahart, Fianna Fáil spokesperson for Dublin. Good morning to you, Deputy. Good morning, Cahill. How are you? Give us an idea of your concerns here, please, Deputy. I think they were summed up pretty well in an article by Lisa O'Donnell in the uh, Irish Daily Mail um, yesterday, where uh, through a freedom of information request, she uh, elicited a number of facts and figures um, that basically give a clear indication that this problem is increasing. There's a soaring number of complaints about intimidation and uh, and worse than it, um, intimidation from, from train users and bus users. Uh, vandalism cases have tripled in there's essentially more than one complaint a day uh, and that's just with Dublin uh, with with Irish Rail and that figure uh, the figure for for 2018 is already 33% ahead of figures from last year some of those stories have made the headlines some of them don't some of them relate to uh, you know the intercity Irish Rail service some of them relate to Lewis here in Dublin Dublin bus but as Dermot O'Leary said on a radio programme yesterday, you know, it's not just confined to Dublin. As Dublin spokesperson, that would be my focus, clearly. Uh, but he instanced, for example, uh, uh, an incident in Clare Morris uh, where there was intimidation of drivers um, uh, on, a, on a train. So it has increased. Uh, it is increasing. The companies involved in public transport are spending more money on uh security measures from CCTV to additional security personnel and things like that. So it's a problem that clearly isn't going away. I'm just looking at the figures uh, from that article. So in in 2017, Irish Rail reported 117 cases of intimidation. That was up from 64 the year before. And you're saying that already this year it's 33% up on that. Yes, that seems to be from the the Freedom of Information. uh, information And that's that's just Irish Rail? That's just Irish Rail. In in Dublin, um, I mean, there would be an awful lot of incidents not uh, reported, Carl. I mean, there would be what I would call, uh, particularly on buses and and, uh, and the Lewis and, and the Dart, low-grade menacing behaviour, um, which, you know, a lot of people will just put up with, but it makes their journey very tense sometimes and, and very uncomfortable. In Dublin, around some of the, the we'll say, the, I don't want to call them well-known antisocial behaviours, but there's some roots which have been clearly identified from time to time uh, where so antisocial behaviour uh, occurs. And in Dublin, we have uh, Dublin Bus and Lewis forums, which involve Dublin Bus staff, Gardaí, Lewis staff. That, they meet once a month and they go through some of the incidents, sometimes where 
there might have been stone throwing or other antisocial behaviour and a bus has had to withdraw for an hour um, or, or for half a day and then it returns. And I know Dublin Bus do huge work with communities. They go to schools, visit schools and, you know, basically tell the kids, look, when there's antisocial behaviour, the people who are, who are being discommoded are your parents and your grandparents uh, who, who are regular use, uh, bus users. Um, so look, in Fianna Fáil, since I was um, appointed as Dublin spokesperson, we've been looking for a dedicated transport police. Um, uh, I might say a couple of words to you about that. If that's it's, it's quite common across the continent, isn't it? And, it and, is, yeah. And, and, and in Britain particularly, which people in London, travelling to London, would be familiar with. Yeah, and I suppose what we're saying is um, it doesn't have to be a burden on the Garda Síochána. It doesn't even have to be a unit within the Garda Síochána. There's actually a model there already. The air, airport police. I was just going to say to you, the airport police, yes. Yeah. They're authorised officers under the Airports and Aviation Act. And as authorised officers, they have full policing powers within the state airport. So within a particular jurisdiction, they have the same powers as the Gardaí. With the problem with, you know, spending significant money on security personnel is that they don't have the powers of, of search, detention and arrest. If an incident happens, they can, you know, I'm not even sure if they have the powers to hold someone until the guard. They can serve as deterrence more than anything, isn't it? Yeah, and look, they do, particularly on the Lewis. There's a very visible presence of security personnel. But I witnessed at a Lewis station there was an incident with an individual um, and the security personnel, you know, were clearly in touch with the Gardaí. CCTV was clearly capturing this, but the individual just ran off. Now, he may have been apprehended later at some stage by the Gardaí, but the security personnel on the platform didn't have the powers to detain them. So, uh, this such a transport police force can be nationwide. It doesn't have to be substantial. All it needs to demonstrate is that if you or I take a, a train or a bus or the tram, that there is a random possibility every day that there could be uh, security personnel on it with the powers of detention, with the powers of search and with the powers of arrest. And in terms of cost, given that the, the you know, Transdev who operate the Lewis, Dublin Bus, uh, uh, Irish Rail, DART are already spending significant money on preventative measures there's no reason why they can't cover the cost, uh, or at least a substantial part of the cost, uh, in the establishment and maintenance of a transport police unit. What reaction are you getting to this proposal, Deputy? Very positive. Um, and I think Shane Ross has kind of gestured positively towards it uh, in the early summer. We've raised it on a number of occasions. Obviously, it gets highlighted at uh, antisocial times. But we're also saying, really, there's a huge push for people to make the switch to public transport. In some cases, people don't have a choice, uh, whether it's congestion or whether it's because of personal circumstances. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And everybody, whether you're a, a student traveling to school or a person going to a hospital appointment or whether you're coming down from Drogheda or Dundalk to Dublin by the train, you are entitled to know that you can travel safely. Well, I, I can tell you from experience, Bussaris, um, I sometimes get the, the bus into Bussaris and then we'll get the, the Lewis and, and Bussaris and Connolly. Particularly the, 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 the intimidation from junkies. I mean, they, they, they pick out their targets and you, you see it all the time. And, and, and it is, I've never reported anything, but it is there. And that's the kind of, well, we won't call it low grade. That's the kind of menacing presence that people tend not to report. Um, uh, I think uh, in the Irish Mail article, Lisa O'Donnell mentions uh, tissue sellers who are particularly aggressive about um, selling tissues. I haven't experienced that myself. Um, But again, everybody needs to know that that, uh, and needs to feel, no matter what mode of public transport they're taking, that... If they're waiting at a bus stop or waiting in bus horse or on a train platform or, or a tram platform, that they can do so safely, that it's comforting to know and reassuring to know that there's CCTV monitoring all of this. But it's also very useful to know to, for anybody who might you know, be interested in engaging in antisocial behaviour or threatening behaviour of any kind, that there will always be a possibility uh, that a member of the tra- uh, at transport police unit can be on the scene at any time. If any of our listeners would like to support this, finally, Deputy, how can they do so? Well, I'll put it to you this way. If Shane Ross doesn't move on this, I'm going to be highlighting it once the, the doll returns again in September. It's not the first time I've done it. Um, we've been really hammering at this for the last year and a half. And so what I would say to the public is, if Shane Ross and this government doesn't do it, Fianna Fáil will bring this in if we return to government. Deputy John Lahart, Fianna Fáil spokesperson for Dublin, thank you for your time this morning. Now, for those of us who managed to catch Ireland against Wales on the television last night, it was a very sobering experience. Martin Neal's team beaten 4-1 in Cardiff in the opening game of the new European Nations League. I caught up earlier this morning with Gary Breen, the former Republic of Ireland captain and Irish Sun columnist. I asked Gary, first of all, for his reaction in, in the immediate aftermath of the game. My immediate reaction is one of concern. I think we can rightly acknowledge how well Wells played, that they have quality players in the likes of Bell, Ramsey, Joe Allen, but they're lesser-known players, they're young players that are coming through, are playing championship level, played at a level far superior to anything we saw from our team, and that will be the big concern. They look like they're on the start of a really positive journey, and we don't seem to be anywhere near that type of forward planning to look forward to. We look like we're in real trouble. There's a dark cloud over this Irish team at the moment for a host of reasons and ultimately when you go on the pitch you hope that the team can give a or show some positives for the manager to take a little bit of the pressure off. Unfortunately we've got none of that. Competitive games. The last uh, competitive game before Cardiff was of course the home game against Denmark in the World Cup playoff. We all know how that went. We've now seen two very, very heavy defeats. Does this raise question marks over the manager's future? 
I think results like this, of course they do. I think we'll see that in club football. We'll certainly see it in international football on the back of what was a difficult end to the campaign, the driving against Denmark. Martin O'Neill talked about a new era. And you have to say we've seen little or nothing of that. The shining or the silver lining to the dark cloud over Ireland was the, the emergence of Declan Rice. But that was as an individual as such in terms of his breakthrough season at West Ham. It wasn't anything to do with what Martin is doing in terms of how he's organising the team, how he's, he's giving hope to the supporters. And I think the supporters now, quite rightly, will start to question this dream team and say, OK, what exactly are you doing with the national team? How are you preparing them? What is the thought process? What is the planning going forward? Because what we're seeing is what we've seen in um, so often throughout his tenure. We've had some incredible results. We have. There's no denying that. And Martin can quite rightly put that forward as his case. But we've had some dreadful performances within those great results. And unfortunately now we're not getting the results to go with the performances that have been quite consistently poor in terms of we can't retain the ball. This is international level, but we just can't look after the football. And that's a real worry. Tactically, playing two central midfielders against the Welsh three just didn't work. And it took him 70 minutes to correct it. Well, it didn't. I think at times you can probably look at Callum Robinson and not knowing his role as that number 10 that he's expected out of possession to recover into a free and make us more strong, give us more of a numerical advantage in that central area. He didn't do that, notably for one of the goals. I think Hurahan was quick to tell him that. But that comes on the training field. When you saw Wells, who were so impressive going forward, but just as impressive was how quickly out of possession they went to two banks of four with the likes of Ramsey dropping in again as well. So you could see the organisation. They were impressive on the night, but their quality, their organisation highlighted our lack of it. And their manager is new to international football as a manager? He is, yes, and I think I think he's got a great pool of players coupled with a world-class superstar in Gareth Bale to choose from, so we have to give some context there. We certainly don't have the squad depth that they appear to have, but they had seven players under the age of 21 and under, and you wouldn't have noticed. I mean, Amper doing central midfield looked like an absolute Rolls-Royce, really, in that midfield area. He was just purring through it. We couldn't lay a glove on him, and I know he had Joe Allen alongside him helping out, the likes of Ramsey as well, but I think Ryan Giggs new to it. This is obviously his first competitive game for Wales, but I think he'll be delighted but it was very obvious watching just how much work he'd done in organising that team. What effect does this have on the players, Gary? I mean, you, you've been in Ireland dressing rooms, you've been in so many dressing rooms across the Premier League and the Championship, and when players know that things aren't right between management and certain other players, and I'm thinking particularly the, the Harry Arthur case here, does it have an effect? I think it does. I think you, you try and block out the noise as much as you can, but the players will know this. And I think a lot of the players, the likes of Seamus Coleman, Shane Duffy, who have been our best performers as such, or I know Seamus has been injured, but he's probably one of our best players. I think they were quick to come out post the Wales game defeat to say, listen, we let our manager down. They would be aware of the pressure that was on the coaching team, the management staff as such, and were desperate. Of course they were. Any time they pull on a jersey, that's never been in question with this group of players. Desperate to do well, not only for, the, for their country, but for their manager. But they know that that was woefully below any standard that you would associate with an Irish national team. But I think what you will see now is they'll probably try and take a bit of the pressure off the managers and say, we have to be better. And I think they've said those type of things, but ultimately they have to be organised better. There's no getting away from it. We keep reverting back to it. We seem like we're playing off the cuff and, and that's not acceptable at this level. The Harry Arthur situation, the Declan Roy situation, does it raise questions about how the management are dealing with the players? And, and both Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill in this. Well, I think supporters will ask those questions, but 
I think it's very difficult for the management team to have any say on what Declan Rice considers his nationality to be. I know it's a very personal decision with a dual heritage player like Declan. I think we'd, we were desperate to see him come through because he looked like a, a real shining light in terms of the struggles we've had recently. We were desperate to see him come into Ireland and potentially be a player who plays for us for 10, 15 years and, and also ultimately be a captain of Ireland. So the disappointment was great there. But the Harry Arter situation is still so difficult Martin's alluded to both scenarios but until we hear from the players themselves and they might be a bit guarded in what they tell us but nevertheless we still need to hear from them to categorically know what has gone on because if it's a case of Harry Arter being a little bit precious didn't like the criticism then that's not really acceptable he's a a Premier League player an international player should be able to take criticism as much as you take the praise so how that plays out remains to be seen if Ireland were to have a bad month next month Denmark and Wales at home is there a future for this management team? Listen, you talked about results like this have a massive knock-on effect. We've seen it before. Don't forget, we come back from the World Cup. It was a relatively positive experience in Japan in 2002. Suddenly, we've lost two games. The whole mood changes. I know there was a side issue with the whole Roy Keane side pan problem. But Mick McCarthy's gone from being a brilliant manager to the supporters wanting him out after a couple of games. So it can change very quickly. And I definitely sense... and and you can hear it from the supporters now that they're not buying into this dream team in the way that they did initially when it was presented to them. You know, a big PR spin in terms of how successful Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane have been in the, in the past, two of our most famous footballing sons. But I think every opportunity now that Martin O'Neill tries to talk about being a two-time European Cup winner as a player and talking about his brilliant success, which he had with Leicester Celtic and Aston Villa, won't really stack up now to what he's doing right now. The Irish team about the present and about the future they want to have a competitive team right now but they want to look forward to having one in the future as well to ensure that we're at major championships and I'm not sure whether or not they believe that Martin O'Neill is the man to do that and that was the former Irish captain Gary Brain talking to us earlier we'll be back after this Michael Reed on LMFM. And speaking of world beaters, we now know that the lack of parliament in Northern Ireland is a world record over 580 days at this stage. And yesterday, the British government took action with the Secretary of State announcing that MLA members are to be in receipt of a 27% pay cut uh, over the lack of an assembly. I spoke earlier this morning to Jim Wells, the DUP MLA for South Down, and I began by asking him where we are at the moment with the Northern Ireland Assembly. Well, we've been in suspension for 600 days. Um, the, the, the Sinn Féin are still making a series of demands, uh, which they will not agree to return of devolution until those are agreed to, and they're totally unacceptable. So after 600 days, the Secretary of State announced that uh, we're all getting a pay cut. <laughs> of 25%, just over 25%. Mm, 27%. 27%. Um, yeah, yeah, and entirely justified. I don't think any of the MLAs are going to complain. There's no one going to be protesting. Uh, there's an element of our work that we're not doing, and that's legislation and scrutinising, and we haven't done it for 600 days, so I think it's entirely acceptable that our pay is reduced accordingly. So the salary was £49,500, and it's been reduced down to 35888 in two stages, which will start in November with a, a further cut three months later. Has Karen Bradley brought this cut in in the, in the hope that it, it kick-starts talks that will bring the Assembly back? 
Well, she brought it in as a result of a report issued by Trevor Rainey, uh, a former chief executive of the Assembly. It's entirely justified. It, it won't change the DUP stance uh, whatsoever. Uh, you know, the fact that we've got this 27% pay cut will not change our, our views. Um, the demand for, for, for gay marriage and for an Irish Language Act and the removal of Arlene Foster are just totally unacceptable. And if we were to agree to any of them, then it would be followed by a series of more unreasonable demands, so therefore, including probably abortion. So therefore, we're just not budging. Um, we're prepared to sit down and talk with Sinn Féin and find a way back to devolution. But we're not going to give in to demands like this because it'll be the thin edge of the wage. Arlene Foster is quoted this morning as saying that it is deeply frustrating and utterly careless that Sinn Féin has decided to block government for almost 600 days. And from listening to you, you'd agree with her? Absolutely, 100%. She's correct. They walked out in uh, January 2017. Uh, they said they wouldn't come back in unless they got their demands. We could have done the same. We could have demanded the right to fly our flag, the Union flag everywhere. We could have right to demand our orange parades be allowed to continue. There's many things we could have asked for and said we're going to block devolution until it happens, but we didn't. We, we stay on the, in there and negotiate our cause, but we don't bring the institutions down because we don't get our pet projects delivered. There was an attempt made by Karen Bradley when she came into office to, to, to bring you all back together. I mean, have talks been ongoing at all or are we just at a total impasse? There have been no talks now for almost a year. What did happen this week is that the parties were brought together under the auspices of the Alliance Party for initial talks. And of course, we are perfectly happy to go, to go back into any form of negotiation. But at the end of the day, we keep coming back to the fundamental issue. Should we change the status of marriage in Northern Ireland in the same way you've done in the Republic? And should we have an Irish language act when less than a quarter of 1% of the population speak it fluently? And uh, you know, we simply can't give away, away to those because, as I said to you earlier, not only would we have to deliver those, but then they would use the same power of veto to come back and demand other concessions. And that's just not the way you work government. It wouldn't happen in the Irish Republic, and it certainly can't happen in Northern Ireland. But could you not, Jim, give, give some leeway in terms of those two particular items and say, and that is the end of the concessions? No, because we know from, from the past that it won't be the end of concessions. And, you know, a, a redefinition of marriage is a fundamental issue to many people in Northern Ireland. We, we watched in horror what happened in the Republic. Equally, the introduction of Irish Language Act would be, first of all, incredibly expensive, be very, very antagonizing to the unionist population. Irish is being used as a political weapon uh, throughout Northern Ireland by Sinn Féin. And we know that it's a sinister thin edge of the wage and that they're insatiable and uh, therefore it just can't happen and uh, you know, there, there, there would be no support amongst the English community uh, particularly on the Irish Language Act I mean it's almost 100% against it So by the sounds of that the world record uh, for a, a lack of government is going to continue Unfortunately so. I mean, literally, if uh, Sinn Féin were to park these demands and, and refer them, to, say, to an assembly committee for discussion, uh, we would be back in on Monday morning. Literally, I would interrupt my holiday in beautiful West Cork and come straight back home and would be sitting in Stormont on Monday morning. Uh, that, that hasn't happened. It won't happen. And so, therefore, with this impasse, and, uh, I mean... We, uh, except the Sinn Féin, everybody wants to get back and deal with the important issues such as health, education, infrastructure that really need to be dealt with immediately. And was that made clear to Sinn Féin at the, at the meeting you spoke about this week? Oh, yes. 
I mean, now, Sinn Féin are very clear in where we stand. Uh, and uh, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that we, we're, we've hit an impasse, but it's not of our making. Uh, and there is a deep sense of frustration. The 600 days has nothing to do with the DUP. Uh, if Sinn Féin at least would run away from the playing field and let the rest of us continue, but of course they have this effective veto that if they don't nominate a deputy first minister, we have no government. And I mean, apart from Sinn Féin, nobody wants that to continue. And there are really pressing issues coming up, particularly the restructuring of our health service and the chronic underfunding of education. And those decisions have to be made. Difficult and all they are, they should be being made by locally elected representatives because what Karen Badley stated yesterday was that she was going to permit civil servants to make these big decisions and some could be very difficult uh, to stomach but it's not our fault that that's the situation we're in. Well did a lot of this not go back Jim to 2017 and the cash for ash crisis? Well, yes, and that's been dealt with uh, by a public inquiry, but that was the excuse used by Sinn Féin to bring down the institutions. It wasn't the reason. The reason was they felt that they were not getting enough concessions from the unionism, that the DUP were taking a strong stance against these unreasonable demands. And guilty as charged, we were, we were taking a stand. But equally, on the day-to-day government of the province, there was an awful lot of agreement. Uh, and things were moving forward. Okay, maybe three steps forward to back, but things were definitely settling down and beginning to work. Uh, but we were, the DUP were in a strong position and were not giving in to unreasonable demands. And that will continue to be our stance because, uh, you know, many of us could not stomach their demands. And I think fundamentally, they have no right to state who we can choose as our party leader and first minister. That's our right. It wouldn't be acceptable in the oil for that to happen, and it's not acceptable in Northern Ireland. What concessions are you prepared to make at this moment in time? We are prepared to go back in and discuss all of these issues, uh, but we're not prepared to have a gun put to our head. The way you deal with these in the Doyle and in Westminster and in Stockbridge is to sit down and flash out compromises and, and reasonable ways forward. But you can't take the ball, run off the plane, pitch and say you're not coming back on until you get your pet projects delivered. That is just no way in which to have the democratic system working properly. But you are happy to talk. Absolutely, and we'll be sitting in talks. We've sat in talks to the cows come home uh, uh, to try and resolve this issue because it's not in the interest of anybody in Northern Ireland for us to set world records in terms of a lack of government. We've been here before, by the way, Cahill. We, we were here before between October 2002 and May 2007, and as a result of negotiations, we did get a sensible compromise. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, that's what we need to do. We need to keep talking and talking until we can get issues sorted out. But unreasonable demands cannot be delivered at the, at, you know, at the point of blackmail. That can't happen. And when are the next talks planned, do you know? Well, there's the informal talks that are ongoing at the moment. I don't know what progress are being made. And then I, I would have suspected the Secretary of State will act to set up more formal talks. I have to be honest with you and say that I don't think anything's going to happen before we leave the European Union. I think Brexit is utterly dominating all shapes of politics in Northern Ireland and further afield. And that is such a major issue that until that's out of the way, I doubt if there's going to be any progress. And secondly, perhaps not until the next election to the Doyle in the Republic. 
which will clear the field as far as Sinn Féin are concerned. So being realistic, I'd be very surprised if we were having, weren't having this conversation in March 2019. I think, I think that's being realistic about it. What's your view on Brexit at the moment, Jim, in terms of the, the, the border and the, the hard border issue? Well, uh, we don't want, nobody wants a hard border. I don't think it's going to happen. I think there's sort of tantalising glimpses of some form of progress with Barnier uh, and that you know, there won't be a, a new deal Brexit. Um, we want to continue the excellent relationships we have with uh, the people of the Irish Republic, both trading and politically. And I think there's a tentative uh, suggestion that we will reach a, a compromise which will enable that to happen. That's in nobody's interest. We're too interdependent. Uh, both north and south for that to happen. But do remember, of course, for every pound of goods we sell to the Republic, we sell nine pounds to the rest of the United Kingdom. So we need to maintain a, a, a direct and restrictable link with the rest of the UK for the economic benefits. But I think I think we will get there in that one. Uh, and I think the, everyone will be relieved when it happens. There was an opinion poll uh, released during the week by anti-Brexit campaigners in Britain, and it said that in the event of a no-deal Brexit, that 56% of people in Ulster would vote for a united Ireland. Well, no doubt 56% of people in Ulster would, but let's talk about Northern Ireland, <laughs> the six counties. Um, uh, no, we got to, we got to see where that, that came from. Uh, that poll came from people who had a very vested interest. All the other independent polls show that uh, Northern Ireland wishes will remain within the United Kingdom. There's a lot of scaremongering. There's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. When Brexit settles down, I think the constitutional position once again will be will be fine. There's so much scaremongering. There's people saying that sort of the four horses of the apocalypse are coming across the border and there'll be pestilence and, and uh, dreadful economic peril. No, that's not going to happen. It'll settle down. And once people realise that you know it's it's not as bad as people make it out to be, and we continue to trade as normal, I think that concern about the future of Northern Ireland's position for the United Kingdom will disappear. I get no sense whatsoever in my community that there's any move towards United Ireland amongst the, amongst the Unionist electorate. And that was Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And as always, we thank you for listening to The Michael Reed Show here on LMFM. Cahill Dervin of the Irish Sun sitting in for the last time this week. Today, Michael will be back with you on Monday. Now, a book that is guaranteed to be on the bestsellers for Christmas is Leo. Leo Varadkar, a very modern Taoiseach which has been written by Philip Ryan and Niall O'Connor. Philip, of course, is the Deputy Political Editor with Independent Newspapers and joins us on the line now. Good morning to you, Philip. Good morning, Cotton. You're down in Galway for the Fine Gael Think Tank. Yes, we're here at the moment. They're, uh, they're after their first day is finished. They're, they've all done their acting classes. and, and Crayon writing. Crayon writing, yeah. They're, they've learned how to be politicians or at least pretend how to be ones. And uh, they're, they're off on their second day. I'm not sure what, what could top uh, the acting classes down at NUIG yesterday, but they're in there anyway. Have you, have you ever come help. across anything like that before, Philip? No, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who dreamt up this idea. It's, it's as if it's something that would be done by a, I don't know, like a Wall Street company or, or something like that, or dreamt up by a, a human resource manager. Uh, I've, I've never gone over the days of politicians sitting around drinking pints for all hours as a, as part of their, their party conferences and singing songs. But we won't go back into that one. Uh, exactly. Philip, you of course are co-author with Niall O'Connor of Leo uh, Leo Varadkar's the new book, which charts Leo's rise from from. Dublin West all the way up to Taoiseach of Ireland. 
Very interesting book, I have to say. The couple of things in it I'm going to bring up with you, first of all, which I didn't know, is that one, for example, I live in Dunshockland, and uh, Leo used to go to the Vortex. Yes. <laughs> and because he was a, a sizable teenager, I think... Um he was, even before he was eighteen, or I'm not sure what was the what was the, the probably eighteen and yeah. maybe twenty one in those days. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I'll ask I'll ask Brian Peters next time I see him. The county <laughs> He was definitely he definitely um, was able to get in underage anyway because he, even the young Leo was you know he, he towered above his um, his classmates uh, and was able to convince bouncers he he was over the age even though he might have been over the, only sixteen seventeen trying trying to get into the vortex there and Dunshockland. The other thing I learned very early in the book is that he did work experience when he was still at school with Francis Fitzgerald. Yeah, but this is one of the interesting things in the book, I, I feel, is that the, his relationship with Francis Fitzgerald, that she was the woman who introduced him to uh, first to politics. She's the woman who gave him, like you say, his first start as a as that transition year student for a week's work experience. He also did a Susan Denham, I think, in the, in the courts. He worked with her for a while. But, but Francis Fitzgerald is a woman he's throughout his political He's always been. Um, he's always been had close ties to. Even even his family is is very close to his family. He's close to that's one of Francis' sons who just got married recently, and and then strangely throughout that political career, he, the, the end of it sort the, the the sort anyway resulted in him having to accept her resignation there. Um, not this time last year. Around and and she year. she fell on her sword to protect him. Exactly. Yeah, to, to save off an election. Francis Fitzgerald, and uh, your your listeners may remember that it was uh, it was around the uh, it was in regard to Garda whistleblower uh, Morris McCabe, mm. and um, the fact that he was there was a suggestion that Mar- uh, Francis Fitzgerald then ta- the tarnished and 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 when this was supposed to happen was the justice minister was was aware of what what was alleged to be a Garda campaign to to smear him in in a commission of investigation. And and she was aware of it, and she was acting it, and she's gonna fall at the point. And look, this this was unacceptable, uh, and she should either go or or the country should go to the polls. Polls. Now, what also struck me looking back at the very early years of of Leo Varadkar's political fledgling political career, for example, but when he was at Trinity, he was described by one of his fellow students as at best dull and socially inept. Yeah, who needs friends like that? Who needs enemies when you have friends like that? But and um, yeah, no, even in school, I think it, it's something throughout it, throughout his life, even to this present day, I suppose Leo Radcliffe can sometimes be referred to as awkward, shy, loose. There, it, it's kind of a it's a character characterism that character type that throughout his political career, and it's something that he he actually has worked on. That people have come to him. I think there's in the book as well. There's um. We have Owen Murphy, the current housing minister, who is the director of elections, um, purposely went to Leo Radcliffe and, uh, and said to him, look, you need, you need to be a bit more amenable to some of the parliamentary party. You need to engage more with people. So you, so you get a bigger standing and so you become more approachable uh, uh, as, as a minister. And, and that's, that clearly had a, a, a good impact on his, uh, his leadership ambitions. He developed a, a, a penchant for ruthlessness quite early as well, which, of course, politicians have to have. But tell us the Sheila Terry story, please. Yeah, look, Leo Valker, from, from his very start in politics and, and to this day, has just, has just railroaded through, through um, anything that has gotten his way. And, and Sheila Terry was one of the first people um, that, that got in his way, so to speak. She, Sheila Terry was a Fine Gael senator. She was a former independent uh, um, uh, senator and, and councillor. 
who joined Fine Gael and she, she was a mentor to, to Leo Radcliffe out in Dublin West uh, in his Castleknock area. She, she took him under his wing, taught him politics and show, showed him the, the strategies and, the, and uh, the various objectives and things people have to do to become politicians. And, and when she became a senator and the, the rule, the, the dual mandate rule came in, which people might remember, which prohibited um, TDs or senators from holding council seats and uh, our, our Shannon holding being a TD or or a senator while also being a, a councillor. Yes, and um, so so he she he, he got the seat and he, he he took over from her on the council. And then the, the next general election came, and originally he initially he told her that oh no no you go ahead and you run for that you run for that seat. You've been in politics a lot longer than me. You deserve a run. Go for the doll. And uh, within weeks to go, he decided he had a complete change of mind, didn't tell uh, Sheila Terry, and decided to put his name forward and organise a campaign for the selection convention, which saw him, which saw him take the... Take, take the, 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 yeah, he was a, the candidate for the election. Now, finally, um, the book, of course, is available in all good bookshops and online. What's your overriding impression of Leo Varadkar having spent so much time working on this? The, I suppose that the one thing that did struck me by him is the the personal side of him. The book book has a lot of personal details about him. When she did interviews with us and, and spoke about it, it's not an authorised or official biography, but he did speak to us when we went to him and and looked for interviews. Well, and and it, and it, the the thing that did strike me the most is the, the personal side of him. Leo Radker talking about how he suppressed his sexuality. Leo Radker talking about feeling like an outsider as a child in secondary school and even in even primary school, secondary And you school, have, even. you have, Philip, you have very definitely captured all of that and we wish you the best of luck with the book. Leo Varadkar, A Very Modern Taoiseach is available in all bookshops. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to The Michael Reed Show. Fair Play is a new body which seeks to address the gender imbalance in all areas of Irish traditional and folk music. And this weekend they present Rising Tides at Liberty Hall in Dublin, which is a series of workshops which will culminate in a fantastic star-studded concert tomorrow night. Before we came on air, I spoke to Neve Parsons, the traditional singer, a musician and a member of Fair Play. And I asked her, first of all, what the Fair Play principle is. Well, Fair Play is a a group of us got together and we to discuss the fact that there were uh, less women on stage than we would like. Is just to put it very bluntly. And this is predominantly for you guys in traditional music and, and performance arts. Yeah, traditional and well, traditional music and folk music, really. Mm. And it's not just women; it's LGBT community as well, because we have many members of the traditional Irish music scene who are LGBT but it's a very difficult place to be in the traditional Irish music the word traditional being the operative word there you know and going back to the foundation of it I mean Karen Casey who's, who's one of your founder members was involved in, in, in an event in Liberty Hall and she discovered she was the only woman on stage correct um, she was with her husband and his family uh, group which is the Armagh Pipers Club and she she knows and we are all aware that there are as many girls Girls, if not more girls than boys learning music but onto the stage was she was one of 19 and she was the only female so she spoke out that night and there was a few people in the audience that took her up on what she said and she arranged a meeting in January and she was amazed at the amount of people like us that turned up 
up and we've been working through with her ever since. And her experience wasn't wasn't unique? No, no, her, her experience is quite light compared to some of the very big uh, bad things that happen to women but they're all, they're a, a lot of little, little niggly things that overall uh, the big picture, make a big picture very ugly really. What sort of stories have you come across? Nick? Well, uh, you know, there's always a lack of inclusion and visibility with women on stage. I personally was lucky that I saw women on stage and my own mother was full-time working so I was a, what do they say, a latchkey kid. Um, Some of the stories like, for example, I have a friend um, who is a great singer and she gets asked to do gigs and she has her own sound system. So the people coming on to the next uh, on the next gig started to talk to the lad about the the, the guitar player she was playing with about the sound system and asking things and the lad didn't know because it wasn't his sound system and Kiva said look I know about this and he completely dissed her and said what would you know about sound even though it was her sound thing little things like that also I've often on stage um, I've often been commented on my clothes I have a beautiful dress on but you never say you'd never say that he's a beautiful suit on or a beautiful shirt on that's a nice pair pair of jeans yeah exactly exactly you don't say to things like that there are lots of little things like uh, I did hear of one where somebody was asked does your husband mind you going on tour does your husband mind minding the children at home you know as if you would say that to your wife about a wife you know there's sometimes uh, people's dress and age and the fact that they're women is commented on above their musical contribution so what we would like is for more respect for everybody male and female and would, a lot, and what, would, a, would a lot of this Neve go back to the traditional pub culture I mean you know if, if, if we associate Irish music with anything it's probably mm. ballad sessions in pubs and the Dubliners mm. and O'Donoghue's etc all those years ago mm. so so the image was built up over the years wasn't it oh yeah definitely but it, it goes even further than that um, many women would have taught music but would never have played outside the home women tended not to go into the pubs in fairness the pub scene only started in the 60s uh, we're going back further further than that and it's always been in our constitution as you know Evalera put the thing that the women have to be be at home to mind the family and that has changed over the years but a lot of people's attitudes haven't changed it's quite amazing that it's, it's taken your industry up to 2018 to come to to come to life never mind to come to terms with it yeah I think that's the fact that it's traditional music uh, the word itself even means that it's old style old old thoughts old ideas about Men and women, you know. I mean, there's there's other things with the fair play as well. There's ageism. There's, you know, women seem to have an expiry date, but men don't have an expiry date. So you'll find a 77-year-old man up on stage, but you won't find a 77-year-old woman up on mm. stage. Now, it's also important because uh, Pauline Scanlon, who's one of the founding members of Fair Play, yeah. says that even though this is a gender issue, it's important that it be- doesn't become a gender argument. Yes. I mean, we have support from almost all the men we know, uh, all our partners, and the likes of Damien Dempsey, Donald Lunny, Donald O'Connor, you know, Donald O'Connor, uh, to, to mention just a few, really. So we have a lot of men. We, we would like the word gender balance not to be used. We would like there not to have to be a, a percentage of women on stage. We would like the, it all to be just music. But in the meantime, before that happens, we have to address the problems that are facing women in general. How can you correct it? Well, this weekend, starting on Saturday tomorrow, the uh, there is a week 
end of it's called Rising Tides in Liberty Hall there's three panel discussions there's a panel discussion She Means Business Making Music Work now that would be very important just for for people rather than just women but let me see what I, I have it up here now it's uh, evaluate the role of women in the business of our traditional and folk music with our panel of key industry professionals so the key the panelists are Eleanor McAvoy Peter Cosgrove Liz Doherty and Dermot McLaughlin is chaired by Lynette Fay from the BBC the, that's the, the morning one the second panel is playing with power sexual harassment and workplace policy this is one thing that Karen really wants to push the workplace policy like my workplace could be the airport at 3 o'clock in the morning my workplace could be the back of the van with a load of men my workplace could be uh, you know changing my into my uh, stage frock on in the toilet because I couldn't be in the dressing room with the men or whatever so those are what are the rights and responsibilities as employers promoters agents sound engineers teachers producers and performers of all genders a great opportunity to get a unique insight into these panellists life's experience and it's Ellen O'Malley Dunlop Paul Henry and Pauline Scanlon chaired by Una Monaghan Dr Una Monaghan is a harpist academic and a sound engineer and is always asked you know did somebody tell you how to do this or that sort of thing she has a lot of problems she has a lot of things that she can tell us all about and she is doing research uh, on women's experience really and then the last one there is the emerging artists shaping the future is their career in music for you this is one of the problems women learn how to play music but they end up not going on stage a session focusing on the blend of career advice and open floor discussion are there equal numbers of boys and girls learning and playing Irish music which there are are men and women equally represented on our big stages identify the pitfalls listen to advice from our expert panelists Eamon Murray Shane Gillen Werner Nicole of Kira O'Leary Fitzpatrick Tola Custy and Nulo O'Connor facilitated by Joanne Kuzak so and then Sunday is the big concert featuring leading folk and international traditional artists celebrating the creative contribution of women in Irish music you know a lot of people say is there not enough women on stage one of the problems is not a lot of women go on stage so there isn't it's not an even so if you look at all the traditional music you will see that 75% of the traditional musicians on stage are men 25% are women what about that? those other 25% that never get to the stage what are their problems etc so the concert will feature the Freel Sisters myself and my partner Graham Dunn John Spillane Warren Nicole Sheila Denver Barry Kerr and Donald Lunny a band called Atlas uh, Emma Langford Una, Dr. Una Monaghan Jane Walls and Sean McKeown so there's plenty of men in there as well as women so basically what we're trying to say is there is women out there playing but they're not getting onto the stage why are they not getting on the stage we really want to see how we can help and this weekend initially will raise awareness this we did have a ra- an awareness day in June it coincided with Lawn Amon which was the day that a lot of women marched through Dublin and other parts of Ireland to contest the British army wanting to bring the Irishmen draft the Irishmen into the Second World War and the women wouldn't allow it and they, they succeeded so that's the 9th of June and on that day in the 9th of June this year we had a day of awareness where we opened discussions and started to talk about what's happening well, We wish you the very best of luck with the weekend Thank you And if people would like more information www.fairplay.com and that was Neve Parsons and the best of luck to everybody involved with the Fair Play. Fair Play Convention, we'll call it, at Liberty Hall this week. Marie Cairns is back with me just before we go. Marie, political uh, reaction and re- uh, listener reaction to the presidential election. Yes, just going back to that story we covered yesterday with Casey O'Riordan reporting from Louth County Council and 
only one candidate or candidate uh, hopeful, I should say, uh, presidential hopeful showing up. up. Yes. Uh, and there was some response to that. First of all, Gemma O'Doherty, who's one of the said uh, uh, presidential hopefuls, contacted us after seeing our tweets and wanted to mention that the reason that she didn't show up was because she was delayed in Roscommon. And she's making the point that she left, as she calls it, the eastern seaboard. She, she left this part of the country to go to the west was hoping to come back up for the meeting in Dundalk, then would have had to go back to the West again this morning and was saying that when she got delayed in Roscommon, she just had to say to herself it was too risky. She felt that she could put herself at danger and other motorists at danger. And And she she did. She did travel to Navan. Yeah, she just wants to make the point that uh, on Monday she's expected all the candidates that are seeking the nominations are expected to be in Monaghan, Fingal, Kilkenny, Mayo and I think Galway, she says. So she feels the system is unconstitutional and undemocratic because how can you expect to be in, say, three places at the one time. So that's the point that she was making and I'm happy to relay that also. Anyone that's on Twitter may have seen Senator Joan Freeman and she actually made an apology on Twitter, a video, to Louth County councillors for not showing up and she says, I know you took the time out and you took the trouble to be there and I didn't turn up and I didn't let you know that I couldn't turn up and for that... I am very sorry that it was a terrible oversight on my part and that she hopes it's all right if she phones all of the councillors over the coming days to apologise. So there you go. Back to today though and we're still getting lots in on the homeless and the housing situation. Um, Frank got in touch and Frank says that he voted for Damien English. He's responding to his interview several years ago based on getting that regional hospital in Navan that was promised, I have to say, by all the Fine Gael TDs. And, and he it's says in the news again. The ground tonight. is there, but still no hospital. John from Dundalk thinks that uh, you need to take your gloves off, Cahill. The politicians in the north are not are being paid when they don't do their jobs. Maybe we should be looking at the same. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> in these parts. Um, Another listener was in touch to say, John from Navin, he says that he felt that Damien English makes a very good point that there's houses being built all over the county. If you go out driving, you'll see them, says John. Well, as you know, Marie, and I know there are two sides to every story. My thanks to you for the last two weeks, sitting in for Michael to Maggie and to Chris. Paul is up next with the mid-morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for your company over the last two weeks. Michael was back on Monday. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.